Hey everyone, welcome back to Garden State of Hockey. My name's Dan and I'm joined by John. How are you, John? I'm doing You're the doing? things that we need to do, the things. Perfect. <laughs> that was a terrible statement, but we're in the middle of August. It's the dead part of the off season. So you're just sort of scrounging up whatever you can find, whatever you can think of, and putting it on to paper, or electronic paper in this case, and hitting publish. Exactly. And as part of that, we're dedicated to bring you this podcast, no matter if nothing's happening around the team, or really the NHL. The NHL is doing their 31 in 31 series right now, and actually we're recording on New Jersey Devil's Day, but... Let me just save you the reading time here and let you know that it's nothing that you haven't already read this summer as you've been starved for information about New Jersey's team. Absolutely. I mean, if you've been following all about the Jersey, you probably could tell them what the preview of the team is. Right. And I think from the fantasy perspective for fantasy hockey, if you're into that from a projections perspective, that's something that you might want to check out. But everything else is basically everything you already know with Jack Hughes, PK Subban, Wayne Simmons, Nikita Gusev, a lot of information there. Yeah, a lot of consolidated stuff, but I wouldn't say anything new. And as someone who's taken the time to browse through that in bed this morning, it's okay. Save yourself a little bit of time and wait for some other preview pieces once we get closer to camp. But we carry on. We have to fill this space, and we will. We promise that to you. And one of the ways we're doing that is by presenting the annual All About the Jersey list of the top 25 Devils players or prospects under 25. So, John, I know you spearhead that effort regularly. I know we're approaching the reveal date. So what can you give us as kind of a, a taste? And I think maybe by the time this goes up, the list may be out. But what, what can you give us after a first glance of some of the polling and votes? Just to clarify, uh, this is an effort mostly spearheaded by me and Brian Franken. Uh, Brian takes care of a lot of the actual uh, posts itself about the reveal, about who the players are, because this is not just a prospect list. It's basically a check on the team's youth. Um, I think too many times if you focus on prospects, a team like the Devils gets undercut because in the past couple of years, their top prospects have all been in the NHL. And it's not really fair to say, well, the Devils don't have much of a prospect pool because their best young player, Nico Heischer, has been a top center since he's entered the NHL or that Will Butcher has been a significant defenseman since he's been signed. It's more appropriate to say, who are the best players under the age of 25? Because that's where you're going to identify the players who are prospects, but also you give credit to those who have already made it and are making an impact at the NHL level. So what we do is that I put the survey together for the people, the readers. And you don't have to be a member of All About the Jersey. If you have an access to the link, you can vote on your own top 25, and you rank them however you see fit, whether that's by potential, by success, by how you regard their game, whether or not that's something valuable at the next level or maybe not. And then um, we take the community rankings, we take the rankings of the writers that Brian seeks out, which include myself, Brian, Alex, uh, Nate, Chris, uh, Mike, and CJ this year, and uh, we average out the rankings, and that's the top 25 list. And we will begin with the Outsiders on this coming Tuesday, which may be already be up by the time this po- uh, the show is op- posted. The Outsiders are all the players that are not in the top 25. And this year's list will be massive. We have 47 players in the organization that are not over the age of 25. 
which is remarkable considering Damon Severson is now 25, Santini was traded, John Quenville was traded, Jeremy Davies was traded, and some other uh, transactions that I'm completely blanking on at the moment. However, 47 players, it's our biggest list ever. It will most likely be started started at the bottom with Brandon Baddock for the fourth straight year. <laughs> well, you know, he keeps earning the spot. You know, he's he's <laughs> has no real future. I don't know why the Devils re-signed him, but hey, he's a body. But these are all the players that we know of that are under the age of 25. This does include Nikita Papagayev, who's on an AHL contract. He can't even be called up because he's not on an AHL deal, but we consider him to be part of the organization, so he's on the list. Um, includes all the Devils that the that they just drafted last year with Jack Hughes. I'm not going to tell you who's at the top of the list. I could. I could, but that's going to be revealed much later. So the way we do this is that we're going to post the Outsiders, if it's not already posted by this, the time the episode is up. And then in the following, we, following weeks, we reveal we will reveal them in groups of five. So it'll be 25 through 21 next week, 20 through 16 next week, and so on and so forth. And people like to comment and, and argue about this guy should be higher, this guy should be lower, Who, who what, what in the world was John thinking with his ranking, and so forth. And it's really more of an exercise of the wisdom of crowds, uh, Dan. With the wisdom of crowds, even if I don't tell you how to rank them, you tend to suss out who are really the, the best young players in the organization. Who, who are the players that people have confidence in? And based on past rankings, and it's true this year too, is that top draft picks – first round draft picks or the, the highest pick in the draft class, they tend to get a lot more confidence. They get, t- they tend to get higher rankings than not. So Jack Hughes is going to have a pretty high ranking, but that's also consistent in with past lists where John Quenville has been a mainstay of the top 25, even though you and I could both argue that he, he's not that much of a great player. That's the other thing about the list is that it's a top 25. So it's not just, hey, these guys are the top players, but it's also going to identify your future call-ups. There are guys in the minors that are grinding out for a better future. The guys that just came out of college or they're just coming out of juniors and trying to make a name for themselves, and the guys who are in those areas and playing much better than maybe what one expected. So you get a lot of diversity in the sense of where everybody is at their points of their career. And historically, a lot of these guys may not turn out to be NHL players or very good NHL players, but at the very least, you could say, all right, there was a reason why we thought Blake Spears was going to be good. I have the evidence. This ranking is evidence of that. That, uh, And it's not just the writers. It's also partially the community. So we all share in the hopes and dreams and the confidence that we have in these younger players. So that's the top 25 under 25 in a nutshell. Uh, are, are there any particular people that you're interested in learning about? I'm not going to reveal the entire list. Are there any like general questions of what you would like to know about this year's list? So I'm excited to see the big movers and shakers, just because last year we did get to see a lot of these players actually play at an NHL level. You know, yes. whether or not they fit in, whether or not it was successful is another thing to discuss. But we did see empirical proof that these guys were in fact NHLers. So I'm curious to see. Who moves up and down the list the most because of the circumstances last year? Like, I anticipate a big rise for Nate Bastion, for example. He's someone who I did not think much of before last year, and in the small sample that we got of him, he didn't look terribly out of place. Kevin Rooney is another one that had significant minutes last year. Well, I got some bad news for you. Kevin Rooney has not been eligible for the list for a couple years. Oh, there you go. 
He's over 25. Oh, uh, as far as wow, he's yeah. over 25. Yeah, he's he's not a young guy. Okay, all right. Well, there you go. I've learned something today. But uh, yeah, so Bastion, let's circle back on him. He's someone that. I'd like to see how his ranking shifted. Joey Anderson, for example, he's someone who I'd like to see. He probably ended up pretty high on the list the last couple of years, but did his NHL experience shift the perception of him enough, not only from the writer's perspective, but also from the crowd's perspective to say, yeah, he belongs up or down on this list? All right. Well, surprisingly, Anderson was actually rated fairly well last year. He he ended up 13th on the list. Uh, I'm not going to give you the exact number, but he got up. A couple spots so you could say there was a little bit of a boost for him um, I will say the rankings were kind of a little all over the place there was some variation uh, just like last year's but he has his fans and he has people and even the people that don't think he's all that in a bag of chips still have him pretty solid high in the list he's definitely in the upper half of the list so if he's not in the 20s or anything like that a guy like Nathan Bastion I'm, I'm interested he did get a bump he did get a bump he finished 23rd last year he is much higher than what he was last year so absolutely dan your your guess is correct he got a big jump the biggest fall i'll say this much the biggest fall was colby sissons he actually finished 17th on the list after a very successful junior career and that was the big reason why he was ranked very highly because he was doing very well in juniors he he hit the pros and since he had a season where he spent time in the ECHL last season, uh, confidence in him just dropped like a stone. He is not on the top 25. So you're going to read about him or you've already read about him in the Outsiders Post. Uh, likewise, Yegor Sharangovich, who barely made the list at 24 last year. Uh, 25th last year was Michael Kapla. He's not in the organization anymore, so he's already off the list to begin with. But Sharangovich is off the list. He So you're going to have some new faces at 24 and 25 for this year. Uh, Jockton Cheney, who finished 27th last year, he has decided to stop playing hockey and pursue an educa- pursue his education, which I'll credit to him. I think he saw the writing on the wall with respect to his future prospects and said, not for me. I respect that. So obviously he's off the list, too. So he, he was a guy who was rated pretty highly last year among the outsiders, and he'll be off the list entirely. And as you would expect, Dan... A lot of the players that the Devils drafted last year are also in the outsider list, which is which is typical of past years. Usually with the draft class, you're excited about their future, but you also realize they're 18 years old and they haven't done anything at the next level. You're picking you're picking futures. So outside of that Jack Hughes guy, most of that draft class is going to be in the lower end of the draft. Uh, I'm sorry, lower end of the list. That said, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised about where some players are uh, sorted out compared to others. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what the crowd perception was because obviously a lot of these guys last year did not get their debuts in desirable situations. They they were brought on as necessities in times of injury or at the end of the season when it just makes sense to bring up some young players, get them some game experience in essentially meaningless games obviously it's not meaningless to the players they're playing for their future career but in terms of a team perspective the devils did not have much to play for the last couple months of the season so why not try some of the new guys is that the situation where you want to make your debut well no you want to be surrounded by a lot of talent so that you can put your best foot forward but also have a little help on the way however i'm 
again, curious to see what stock people put in those last couple of games' performances. It's essentially the garbage time of the season performance. How much do those people think that uh, these prospects can <laughs> translate that into a season where they don't have to pull as much of the weight but can still play an important role? It, it was weird because a lot of these players, I don't think, anticipated even making their debuts last year, but injury after injury piled up, and all of a sudden you have lineups consisting of players that were an afterthought going into the season. So no offense to them. It's just people did not expect to see a lot of these players in the roles they saw them. So I'm curious to see how that works. And from the updated roster perspective, how much people still believe that they can make an impact in the NHL, if that makes sense. Right. Well, keep in mind, last season was very weird in the sense of guys like, Anderson, for example, he started in New Jersey for the most part, and he got injured. He was one of the injured players uh, as the season went on. So his stock went up and down due to playing with players and without players. And a guy like Bastion definitely got a big bump among the community. McLeod, who was another player who got a bunch of uh, activity because of those injuries, actually went down in the ranking, both in the community and uh, also in in the overall list. And that was a guy who had his opportunities to do something, and he didn't really impress. He struggled to make an impact in most of his games. He was basically there because the Devils needed a guy. And that was reflected in the rankings. His uh, That's a good play. Blake Spears is another example. He was a guy who had a very good junior career. Um, there was a lot of hope that maybe he could be, I don't want to say the level of an Adam Henrique, but he was another mid-round draft pick who had a very good junior career, and you're starting to think, all right, this guy could be somebody maybe. And he got his opportunities, and he didn't really do very well with him. He also fell in the rankings. So while a guy like Bastion went up because he impressed in his limited action, and a guy like Anderson got a bump because he showed some real promise, a guy like guys like McLeod and, and Spears went in the other direction because of that. It's also worth noting that a bunch of the players that got a call up didn't even make the top 25 list because they're not under the age or they're no longer within the organization for one reason or another. I will say, curiously, Brett Cini appears to, at least from the community perspective, he, he ended up in the same exact spot he, he, he was in last year, <laughs> which is impressive considering he played 50 games in the NHL. Like Anderson, he got his shot early on with the Devils last season, and he stuck around for quite a while. It wasn't until the Devils basically said, look, we've seen enough of this. Go, go to Binghamton and work on it because we're going to try some other guys. He 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 finished 15th last year, and he's going to be 15 this year. And the community said he was going to be 15th, so he's number 15. I'm sorry for revealing that part of the list super early, Brian, but he's number 15. There, there's your hint for the future. Other players that got tiny call-ups, like a Colton White and a Josh Jacobs, they both got bump, uh, slight bumps compared to last year, but they were like we're not talking about massive ones. They're not going to be in the top 15 or anything like that. I'm not going to tell you which one actually made the top 25. You're going to have to wait for that post. You're right. It's not an ideal situation when half the team is injured and you have nothing to play for other than lottery balls. That being said, you have to take your opportunities when you can. If we dial back a few years, several years to earlier in this decade, the Del- under the John McClain error, as I call it, the Devils defense was decimated with injuries for the first half of that season. And they tried every defensive prospect that they had. At the time. So Olivia Magnin Grenier, no, he wasn't good. Matt Taramina, no, he wasn't good. Tyler Eckford, no. Out of all the guys that got 
their chance. Mark Fain was the only one that actually played fairly well. And when guys started getting healthy, he stayed on the roster. So even though he was in an unideal situation, the team was bad. The team was playing bad. You had very little help. You have to make the most of your opportunities. And Mark Fain was rewarded for that. And he stayed on the roster. He formed a great pair with Andy Green. And he's had a fairly good NHL career because of that. Do you think it's fair to say that the Colton White and the, let's say the, who was it? It was the Jacob, Josh Jacobs. Uh, Josh yeah. Jacobs bump. Yeah. Were because of that brief appearance, just because of name recognition alone. Do you think that has changed the perception enough that they went up this list because of that? Because I'm not sure, you know, how much we saw of them. Yeah, they only played like one. one I think one of them only played one game, and one of them only played three games. Right. So it's all based on. Essentially, a oh, I've heard of that guy. He played in the game last year. Let's say that if he's good enough to be at least called up for a look, then he's worth putting above some others. Is that is that a fair assessment? I will say for the community ranking, I'm not going to compare it to the full list. The community ranking spots number 20 through 27 we're all separated by very, very little. Like, it was a very close race between all those guys. So it's sort of like it's a big clump of players. And some of these guys were players who did well in Binghamton or showed well in Binghamton, or as you say, they got a call up, so therefore there's a little more name recognition. There's even one player that the community from from last year's draft, the draft class of 2019, that actually snuck onto the list. Because apparently the community likes this guy a lot more than I think I do. But to your question... I think it helps a little bit, but I think it also helps that if you read Jeff Ulmer's stuff with the Binghamton coverage, they noted that Josh Jacobs and Colton White were probably among their better defensemen last season. So if you're looking at the Binghamton players and going, oh, well, who are, who, who, which guys were good, which guys played well, and you look up Jeff's stuff, you're like, okay, well, if Jeff thinks – Jeff follows the team. He writes about them regularly. He does so on all about the jersey. If he says this guy is good and his panel of commu- – panel of his fellow Binghamton followers also say he was pretty okay. Hey, I trust him more than I trust the, uh, you know, the fourth round draft pick of 2019. So we'll give him a higher rating. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this post. It creates a lot of great discussion every year. It's something that with the youth movement being so prominent on this team now, it's just a vast change from a couple of years back where you're taking guys that in the back of your mind, you don't think they ever have a shot at the NHL, but now there's a big, big youth movement in New Jersey. So this list holds even more stock and I'm excited to talk about it when it's fully released. I'm excited to hear people's reaction to it because I know there'll be some dissenting opinion and obviously people can make their cases in the comments. We of course welcome that. But that being said, three of those guys on that list who are, very likely to be in the top 10, I'd say, are Jack Hughes, Jesper Boquist, and Ty Smith. And the reason we bring them up is because they were the rookies invited to participate in the NHL Players Association Rookie Showcase. They're the three players representing New Jersey. So Jack Hughes, you know, what more can we say about him? There's no chance he doesn't make the team. He's a guy who is expected. The great things are expected of him. He's someone who comes with a lot of expectation but also a high pedigree and a high rate of success this is someone who there's a reason he's the number one pick so 
I feel like with him, it's not really worth delving too much further into the weeds, but we've talked about Ty Smith here in the past. We've talked about Boquist to some extent, but those two guys were chosen to represent New Jersey alongside Hughes, and they're guys that have been discussed by people surrounding the team for, in Smith's case, two years now, and Boquist a little longer, but they would they're going to have a bit of a trickier time making the team. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't. In fact, there's a very good chance both of them, if not one of them, do. But in terms of the players that Smith and Bocus would have to beat out, I know we're going a little bit of a different direction here. There's a reason they were invited to the showcase. So there's a reasonable expectation that they're going to make an appearance for New Jersey next season. Do you think that either of them will start the season in New Jersey? And I know Boquist doesn't have the option to go to the AHL. So does that impact his chances of taking a roster spot, maybe somewhere on the third or fourth line? Boquist's situation is a little trickier than Ty Smith's. So Smith, he can go to Binghamton. But Boquist has a European release clause in his entry-level contract, which means if, if he's not in New Jersey... He goes to Brennis. He goes back to his team in Sweden. And I would presume that if you're going back to Sweden, you're not going to be called up. Like, you're not going to call up the phone and say, hey, we need a body. Can you fly over to North America and play in the NHL? I don't think it, I don't think that's how it works. So in terms of he needs to beat out somebody for that fourth line. And that's kind of why a couple weeks ago I wrote about whether or not Miles Wood has a future in New Jersey. Because of all of the players currently on the roster, he sort of is an odd figure in terms of if you figure that Boakfist could be a winger. Because Boakfist is a natural left, left-handed shot, you need a left winger. Well, your options for the third and fourth line at left wing are going to be Blake Coleman and Miles Wood. Well, Blake Coleman is far too useful to sit down. You want Blake Coleman playing as much as he can. Also, shout out to him for... Uh... The announcement that he had, just a quick aside for Blake Coleman. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a, a father to a baby girl, so congrats to the Colemans. But yeah, back Congratulations to, you. to them. Yes. So Coleman is, is somebody I need to see in the lineup every night. Miles Wood, on the other hand, as much as there are very good skills there, I question if my choice is do I want to see Bokvist play or do I want to see Miles Wood play, I'm not super sure – Miles Wood is the better long-term option, if that makes any sense. I wish the Devils, in retrospect, did not get John Hayden, because <laughs> yeah. then this this would also be an easier argument. But the problem is, you got John Hayden. I guess you could argue, maybe I'm overthinking this, but John Hayden is a right winger. So I don't want Jesper Bo- unless Jesper Bo- Boakfist can show he can play off wing like Jesper Brat does. If that's the decision, then this is a lot easier. Just say, hey, John Hayden, you're going to sit down just like you did in Chicago several times, and Jesper Bokefist will play there. It's not going to be prime minutes for a guy like that, but at least if you're in the lineup, you can always make changes during the game. You can give him a shift here and there on the power play if you'd like to, or special you know, cases like somebody gets injured mid-game. Okay, you give, give, give the rookie some more minutes. Uh, you can always make those adjustments. It's, impor- it's more important that he's on the roster than he is where he is in the lineup, if that makes any sense. Right. So Hayden is a guy. I also wish Rooney didn't have a one-way contract year right now because his contract last season was two-way, which doesn't mean anything for waivers. He'll have to pass through waivers no matter what. But what 
the one-way contract means is that he's got to be paid seven hundred grand, no matter where he is in the NHL, whether it's New Jersey, whether it's in Binghamton. And so that sort of thing compels a team to think this guy should be in the NHL. And since Bokovic is a center, again, Rooney can kill penalties pretty well, but he can't really do much else beyond that. Bokovic has a legitimate potential future. And I think most people, and I can go back to the top 25 under 25 and 19, and I can confirm the community thinks he has a lot of potential and the other writers think he has a lot of potential. So I could see a future where the coaches say, sorry, Rudy, you're going to sit and you'll make your money in the press box while Bokovic gets out there and grows as a player there. So those are the players that come to my mind in terms of who he really needs to sort of beat out. And, of course, if there's other players that make a case in camp like Nathan Bastian, Michael McLeod, Brett Sini, you know, Bokovic will have to beat those players as well because they're going to be competing for similar spots on the roster. Yeah, let's be clear. We don't want it to be easy for him to get on the team. That means that there's not enough competition in camp for that role. It's better to see more players competing for a legitimate NHL roster spot. It's someone that we'd like to see his potential manifested. We've heard a lot about him, and it'll be interesting to see how he adjusts to North American ice. It's interesting to see how he meshes with the rest of the team, and there's no reason to believe that he shouldn't do well, but the more competition for him, the more it'll kind of push him to unlock that potential as well. So we want to see hard battles at camp. We want to see speculation. We want to see a lot of information coming out that, listen, people really want to be on this roster for this year, and Hayden feels like he carved out a more unique niche, more of the Curtis Gabriel mold of put him in for a game against a rival or someone who's more, a team that's more physical and rough and tumble, let's say like the Boston Bruins, for example. That's the kind of game that I can see Hayden coming into based on what we heard about him this offseason. So it's going to be a very different role between him and Boquist if they do end up splitting that 13th forward role. However, I'm I'm excited to see what he can do because we've seen what Hughes can do. We have so much information on him. We've had information on him coming in all summer. And Smith, we saw track through almost all of training camp last year and almost make the roster then. It's Boquist that was not the earliest cut, but was cut because they knew they had the time to wait on him. Right. And... I'm I'm excited to see how he stacks up against everyone else. By all accounts, he shouldn't he shouldn't have a problem making a name for himself. It's a matter of how will he stand out at that point. How will he ensure the ensure to the coaching staff that he's ready for the NHL game. He's ready to take that kind of role, maybe more of a bottom six role for now, just because for the first time in what feels like ever, the top six is in good shape but for that bottom six role is he ready to step in there and learn what he has to learn this year to advance enough and be a mainstay member of the team now smith is an interesting example the other way too because he arguably came the closest to making the team last year without actually making it he was impressive through all of preseason he looked poised he looked collected and this year all they've been talking about is how he's put on muscle and bulk and he was whl defenseman of the year so who does smith have to beat out to get that roster spot it feels like there's going to be some jostling for that five six seven role between let's say mueller carrick and smith so what realistically does that look like for him on his path to the NHL as well? Well, you pretty much nailed the players 
that he needs to be concerned about. Uh, I'm working on the assumption that because Mueller is a, le- I'm sorry, Smith is a left-handed shot, that Mueller is his prime competition. Because Andy Green's going to be in the lineup. He's the captain. He's there. Whatever you think about him, he's going to be on the roster. Will Butcher was arguably the Devils' best defenseman last season. He's on the roster. So that leaves Mueller and Smith as your left-sided defensemen who are competing for one spot. And, of course, if the Devils decide to play some games where they go to seven defensemen, which means a forward is going to have to sit, or an extra forward is going to have to sit, rather, there's your seven. I don't know if Smith can play on his offside, and more importantly, I don't know if he should. (laughs) So so I'm not super concerned about Carrick. The right side of the defense is pretty much locked down for the moment because you have Damon Severs and Sammy Vatnin and P.K. Subban. None of those guys are going to sit for some rookie. None of them are. Yeah, Yeah, that's not a bad crew. On paper, <laughs> Smith is going to have to try to beat out Mueller, and this is a bit a bit of a tricky thing because I'm going to have a post out on Monday. Again, it should be out while this is posted. That shows that Mueller was actually really good on the penalty kill last season, albeit with limited minutes, since Andy Green and Ben Lovejoy played every minute that they possibly could last season on the penalty kill. But for the smaller the smaller group on the second unit, he did better than. Steverson, he did better than Vatnin, and he did better than the vast majority of the NHL defensemen on the penalty kill. So it suggests that he has some skill and some value there. And Smith is a rookie, so who knows if he can kill penalties, who knows if he can help out on the power play. Based on his WHL work, he absolutely could do work on the power play, but again, the Devils already have Butcher, Subban, Steverson, and Vatnin as power play options for the defense. So... Smith is going to have to compete a lot harder than I think people will give him credit for. There's not really an open spot. And Mueller, he's not going to thrill you. He's not going to make you jump out of the seat. He's not going to make you buy a ticket. But he's been competent. And the Devils have him for another year. I think I think, I think think it's going to be a tougher climb to have him fight for minutes. I could see Smith starting on Binghamton next season. Or this coming season, rather. Mm-hmm. So that's more of an out of necessity thing because the options there, because it's not likely that all of these defensemen make it through the season unscathed. Also, oh so yeah, Smith there will, will be get a, his opportunities. Oh yeah, he will get his shot. Anybody who doesn't make the team because this Binghamton, they're going to get their shots too. Historically, yeah, the Devils had a lot of injuries last season, more than they usually do. But for the most part, team most NHL teams use eighteen forwards throughout a season. And I'm not talking about just like one game call-ups or two game call-ups. I'm talking like they eventually get to play like 10 games in the season or more than 10 games in the season, uh, which is roughly an eighth of your season right there. So it's a significant amount of time. So identifying who your 15, your 16, your 17th forward, as well as your 7th, 8th, and ninth defenseman, you really need to do that because you're going to have to use them at some point. And for Smith, if he ends up being number 7 and he starts off in Binghamton, and he's the first call-up, that might not be such a bad place for him to start. And just like Mark Fain before him, just like other defensemen before him, like Damon Severson, if he does well in his call-ups, the team will make room then. Right. I have to agree. I mean, there's no way to reconcile the fact that they have more defenseman contracts than they have spots available. That's just the long and short of it smith is on his deal already they're they're sure they want to keep him around as an option for new jersey and binghamton but 
this is someone who's going to have to basically have the same training camp again to convince the coaches that, yeah, he's better than Carrick, he's better than Mueller right now. And if he's not, then maybe he'll just have to wait his turn. But I think he can. I think he can go to camp, and while the numbers may be tricky for them to work out, there is the possibility that they could look to move a defenseman too before anything happens uh, to start the season. This Again, this is all without the caveat that there may be some last-minute bodies brought into camp just to create competition, and then you have someone like, I don't know, a Drew Stafford or a Lee Stempniak coming in on a PTOs who managed to make the team. Of course, the depth was much thinner then, and there was not yeah. as much of an emphasis on youth, but it doesn't you know, it doesn't preclude that option from happening because I know Shiro does like to do that. He does like to create that kind of competition and see what he's got from his players. Yeah, exactly. I I, I would be surprised if we see PTOs because we've just discussed about how there are players that could break into the NHL right now, young rookies that could do so, or guys who got their opportunities last season one way or another that could be in the NHL. And we're already penciling them outside of the lineup just because of who who they added. Like Joey Anderson, for example, he's rated pretty highly on the top 25. He got over 30 games last season. I, it's not even a thought in my mind he's going to make the NHL roster. <laughs> it's like, who's he going to beat out? <laughs> right. No, exactly. Like, and that's the tough so, so thing. To that, you, it's a yeah, good so, problem to have. It's one of those classic. Yeah. It's not a too many cook situation. It's, man, we have 15 gourmet chefs in only one restaurant, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe not gourmet, let's let's not overhype them too much, but it's still 15 very viable chefs for one spot at a, you know, as a, as a sous chef at a famous restaurant. How about that? Right, but the, the, the larger point is just that that speaks to how much Shero has built into the organization from a youth perspective and in terms of a talent acquisition perspective. Uh, when you're bringing in the Lee Stepniaks and the Drew Staffords of the world, it's not just because you want to create competition in camp. It's because you're identifying that you need a body for depth. You need that guy who's willing to play on the fourth line, a veteran who can jump in and play one, two nights a week in a three or four game se- week series. Or, all right, this guy got injured. You're going to step in. And I know you're a veteran, so I know you'll handle your business. I know that you're going to handle things professionally and you're going to do the best you can because you're playing for next year's contract. Uh, but I, this, given the current state of the roster, I don't see a need for PTOs. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's totally fair. I'm just saying that it is something that often does take people by surprise when people get invited there anyway. Yeah, the Devils don't need it now, but who knows what kind of conversations he's going to have this summer. Yeah, and it's, a, and it's a PTO. I mean, right. there's no limit on... I don't think there's a limit on how many you can have. So if there's a guy that... I guess you're quote unquote friends with you're just you're like all right I haven't given an opportunity I haven't been playing can you at least let me get into a couple preseason games and I have something to show people that I can still play right whether here or in Europe or somewhere else um, that's sort of, like similar to the NFL where they'll bring in a guy put him in some preseason games and say look we're gonna cut you but you're on tape. You can call some people. We'll, we'll let people know that you're available. We'll talk you up. You're a good guy and all that, and we'll see what happens. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of thing happen, also happens in hockey in its own way. Uh, but, again, I don't really see it, and I'm not going to say I'm super surprised if it does, but I wouldn't expect the player to – I wouldn't expect the Devils to necessarily 
expect that player to make the team if that does happen. I'll say that much. Right. And if Smith does well, it does bring up a point of uh, putting Sammy Votnin in a position that's a little strange just because his contract does run out at the end of this year, I believe. Right. It's this year, not next. Wait, I'm sorry. What was the question? Vatanen, in terms of oh, yes, someone yes. whose I'm name th- has been floated around. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Vatanen is on the last year of his contract. Green is on the last year of his contract. Uh, so there could be some spots opening up on defense in the near future. And you're likely not moving Green at any point, but Vatanen could still have some value in a trade. If they think there's a serious logjam and they won't, they'll be able to get something of value for him despite his expiring contract. And the fact that Smith has performed well enough to warrant a roster spot alongside everyone else. Listen, I don't know what the defense would look like. I don't know how Smith would slot in compared to Vatanen, but I feel like that's not a terrible option as well uh, in terms of getting value for someone who's on an expiring contract. True. And, and that is something floated because let's say you do have, you know, if, if you think Connor Carrick is a perfectly servable, serviceable third-pairing defenseman on the right side, your right side defense could be Subban, Severson, Carrick. Right. So to that extent, if you think that's good enough, and it might be, Carrick wasn't terrible last season. He wasn't terrible when he got to play in Dallas. Yeah, you can move Vatnin to get some help elsewhere. Of course, it begs the question, where are you going to get the help? We just talked about a forward log jam. <laughs> so... <laughs> So precisely what would you get for him? I guess I guess you could argue a pick, but ideally you would move a guy like that for immediate help. And I guess that would have to be something during the season that would have to be identified. You can't really speculate on that now. Right. And they're not in any sort of rush to do that with him the same way. No. You know, we discussed the Taylor Hall situation at length uh, last time, but they're not in any sort of rush to do anything right now. It's worth seeing how the team meshes, but his his example might be, a little bit more immediate just because of Ty Smith, because obviously Hall doesn't have any competition. He barely has competition in the league at his position, let alone New Jersey. Let's not even discuss that. But Vatanen could have some legitimate reason to think, okay, I could be traded if Ty Smith shows enough at camp. If Mueller and Carrick have come back decidedly ready for the season, that's something that he could see himself on the outside looking in in terms of a potential trade scenario yeah but that's that's just the nature of the business and right. you know i think Matten understands that because he was also traded under similar circumstances in anaheim mm-hmm. where he was i don't want to say the odd man out but the anaheim at the hind had a plethora of defensemen and they needed a center the devils at the time had a plus had plenty of centers but they didn't have many in, in terms of right-sided defensemen. So, you know, Adam Henrique for Adam Henrique and Joseph Blandisi. I can't forget about Joseph Blandisi. Oh, yeah. Can't, can't forget him. Moved to Anaheim for Vatanen straight up, and it was a side that back then most agreed that it was a deal that would help both sides, and it turned out that it did from a positional standpoint. Not that both teams have went on to amazing success uh, after the deal, but both teams got their positional needs sorted out there. Right. So and we could we could see a repeat of that. We could. This isn't to say that I want them to trade Vatnin. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think he's a good defenseman for the Devils. I think he's been pretty good in his time here. Yeah, there's been injury trouble, but he's not someone that I want to see traded. It's that the possibility does exist because of 
Ty Smith potentially taking a spot that that he wasn't anticipated to take when they traded for Vatanen in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that just kind of brings us to the end of our youth talk here. We have an idea of who Boquist and Smith will have to beat yeah. out. I do I do have to offer a correction. Oh, I did ahead. say I did say earlier that the Devils can't recall Boquist, and I'm learning that they could. Although okay. that would be kind of rare to send a guy all the way back to Sweden and then say, hey, come on back. But I would like to think that if they did that, it would have to be on like a per- somewhat permanent basis. Like you're not going to have the guy fly back and forth between Brennis and New Jersey. Right. Uh, but that is that is a possibility. So it's just I not the most attractive one. So I still think your point yeah. holds in terms of uh, him making the roster or maybe waiting another year. But I, yeah, I I agree. I I think I don't I don't anticipate the Devils having to recall him unless he's doing so amazingly well in Sweden that they can't ignore him, right. or they are they need they just really need him just to fill a spot. All right, we're back. Thanks for listening through that. We've got an interesting thing to bring up here, and I say interesting very liberally because a player ranking came out. This is Mike Johnson's uh, two-way forward team on NHL Network, and Kyle Palmieri appears there as the third-line right winger for the all-NHL two-way player team. Now, there's an article on All About the Jersey written by CJ about Kyle Palmieri's impact since he's arrived in New Jersey and John you can speak a little bit more about that but it seems that he's getting glowing reviews all of a sudden for his two-way play so where is this coming from I'm not super sure to be quite (laughs) honest with you because Kyle Palmieri he's not a scrub on defense like he's not somebody who's just floating out there he's not like Miles Wood on defense but I'm a little surprised that he's getting this like I can understand from CJ's perspective because he, he he's looking at relative plus minus, which apparently Kyle Palmieri did well in terms of ex- expected goals against compared to expected goals forward for from a defensive standpoint. Um, he cites Micah Blake McCurdy's heat maps, which show that when Palmieri has been on the ice last season, the Devils have defended the net really well. They kept their most of their shots against to above the right circle, which which would be Palmieri's spot, which sort of implies that he's not doing a great job defending it. But the point is that the, the opposition is not penetrating to get to the slot or getting to the crease all that often, which is ideally what you would like to see in terms of... Actually, no, I stand... Well, yeah, which is not what would you like to see from a defensive standpoint. I guess there's something to be said that when Palmieri's on the ice, the Devils have done well to keep the shots from the outside, albeit mostly it's on Palmieri's side. So if you look at those two metrics, it seems like, oh, this Kyle Palmieri guy seems to be pretty good at, the, at playing defense and playing uh, two-way when he's out on the ice, which is important because he has been the top team, the team's top-line right winger. So, so therefore, he's facing the top competition. He's facing the same guys Hall is facing, the same guys Heischer's facing. That said, if you break it down a little bit and you go to a site like Natural Stat Trick and you look at the on-ice rate stats when he's on the ice in five-on-five play, his numbers are not that impressive. His on-ice rates are consistently below 50% for attempts, shots, scoring chances. Uh, <laughs> this past season was the first time in New Jersey where he's just above 50, 50% in scoring chances, which may be an indictment of the team's offense more so than the defensive part. But truth be told, if you're that good on from a two-way player, and he's Kyle Palmieri, he's supposed to be an offensive player, 
it is a bit of a problem if his offensive numbers are bad. Right. <laughs> so, so I mean, it's one of those things you look at at first glance. And then if you look at relative numbers on ice compared to off ice, uh, this past season, I think, was the first was the first time in the last three seasons where he's above like he's he's providing a positive impact to those percentages I just mentioned. I'm sorry. It's the first time he's been a, a positive impact for over a percent, which is good. You know, when you step on the ice, if the shots shots against are going down and the attempts against are going down and the scoring chances against are going down, that implies that he's having at the very least, he is not hindering the defensive improvement. Right, which I, which I have a feeling that's probably why, that's probably why he's getting on lists like Mike Johnson's list and why he shows up well in those other metrics I just mentioned. Uh, but from a pure eye test standpoint, it's one of those things where, yeah, he's not bad, but you also notice he's not really killing penalties. He did some of that work earlier in his New Jersey career, but he's been sort of taken off that, and I don't know if the Devils are going to plan to put him back on there. So I'm just a little confused that he's on this list with Mike Johnson with guys who are legit two-way stars like Patrice Bergeron, Ryan O'Reilly, Mark Stone, Tyler Toffoli, Sidney Crosby, like all these guys who are, you know, for all their offensive uh, standpoints, that, you know, they're very, very good defensively. Curiously, Mike Johnson leaves off Sean Couturier and Andre Kopitar, and I understand Kopitar had a pretty bad season last season, but leaving Couturier off is, uh, that's that's an interesting decision, I'll say. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I- I have like, to that's say like, that's like that's kind of a like not that I want to praise the Philadelphia Flyers for like anything, but that's a pretty big omission, Mike. Right. Johnson. <laughs> and and another thing is that he was also left off the top. I think he was left off the top 20 NHL centers, too, which is weird because he was in the conversation for the Selkie Trophy a lot of the year. This is people who get nominated year in, year out, like Bergeron and then O'Reilly, who won last year alongside Stone, who everyone thought would win last year, and you throw in Palmieri, and that's the last of his skill set that I think about. I don't think of Palmieri as this marquee defensive player. I think of him as, this guy can score a goal on the power play. This guy can put the puck in the net from pretty much anywhere and will play hard to get there, but do I associate him with his defense? I guess not, but if that's a narrative that we're pushing nowadays, then I'm not against it by any means. It's just... It's weird. It's a dimension of a player that you didn't anticipate hearing about or seeing anything about, but we could even say the same thing about Nico Heischer. He impacts the defense perhaps even more so than Kyle Palmieri does, but I guess they're factoring in the two-way aspect of this in the sense of who gives this contribution defensively relative to their offensive performance as well. I don't think any of these guys are slouches offensively either, so that may be where the difference is coming in. But you even have, you know, like a Travis Zajac, who's a defense first forward. He's someone who would probably fit better on a list of defensive forwards than Kyle Palmieri, but the balancing of skills has helped his case a lot this summer in this discussion. So it's interesting. It's interesting that he has this attached to him now, but I don't hate it. I think it's kind of cool that he's getting this recognition. I think he's very quietly been a great player for New Jersey, and he has very much been one of those leadership voices in the locker room. He's a Jersey guy, and, you know, I like watching him. I'm interested to see how much people pay attention to his defensive metrics now and if he gets a few more looks on the penalty kill. B, 
because of something like this, because he added another dimension to his play in training camp, or because they have more people who are capable of creating a th- uh, threatening play on the penalty kill now. You put Palmieri in a position to succeed on the penalty kill, who knows what he can do just because he has that scoring touch, but it's cool. It's cool to see Palmieri being acknowledged. Do I necessarily agree with his inclusion on this team? I don't know. I would, was never thinking about it, but the numbers seem to suggest that he does impact the defense in a positive way, and that's really all you can ask for from a forward. True, but at the same time, Palmieri also, he only played 18 seconds on the power play, like, last year, per game, I'm sorry, 18 seconds per game last year, which is, he's very, he's coming on at the very end of kills. Like, you're transitioning to your regular five-on-five lineup. So you meant 18 on the penalty kill. 18 seconds per game on the penalty kill. Right, right, you said power which play. Which is... I'm sorry. My yeah, mistake. no worries. <laughs> uh, he played a lot more than that on the power play, and he should. Uh, in terms of offensive zone starts, like, only Hall and Heischer, I think, took more offensive zone starts. And that's not necessarily a knock on Heischer and Hall's defensive sets. It's just the fact of if you're taking an offensive zone start and you have the choice, put your best line out there. Whereas typically your two-way forwards, you, you, you want to have those guys, you know, have a nice mix because – you know, you trust him on defensive situation. The long and short of it is that in theory, yeah, you could put Kyle Palmieri on a penalty kill, but based on the fact that the Devils already have Blake Coleman, they have Travis Zajac, they have Pavel Zaka. If Anderson and Rooney are in the lineup, you have them. Like those five guys were very good on the penalty kill last year. And even though he didn't play a lot on it, Nico Heischer had some really, really promising rate stats on the penalty kill last year. So that's six guys I would pick ahead of before I would even think about putting Kyle Palmieri in a shorthanded situation. That's kind of, that's a, that's a yet another reason why I, I'm really confused why he's included on this list. I, I wouldn't consider Palmieri to be the team's best defensive forward last season. And I don't think I would consider him to be one right now. I'll agree that he's not bad on defense, which is good. Like, but I want to see him and his line push to play forward more if anything else. So I, I think, I think he's getting, I think he made this list mostly because I, I'm confused as to how he made the list. To be quite <laughs> honest with you. I don't know. Like, are there really only two right wingers that are more prominent than, than him on the penalty kill? I'm sorry. I'm not the penalty kill in terms of it being a two way forward in terms of he's got the offense and the defensive game, maybe, but you couldn't have picked another center and have him switch to rights switch to the right side just so you have him on the list. Oh, like I mean, a Couturier, for example? Like a Couturier or a Kopitar. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm looking at the list as a whole, and I'm seeing two Detroit Red Wings on this list. If the <laughs> Red Wings had two really good two-way forwards, they probably would have finished a lot better than what they did last season. Right. Like, I'm actually now getting more confused about this list the longer I look at this. So, I mean, it's nice to get recognition. I'm, I'm just not sure it's warranted. Well, yeah, that's fair. I mean, warranted or not, his his name is out there. And if your name is near a list like this, you're already doing something good. So I keep doing what you're doing, Kyle. Uh, we're all very happy to have you. And also very excited to see what he can produce um, this year when he doesn't have to take on the majority of the offensive responsibility. Well, you, you kind of want him to. I mean, he, of he's a big shooter. But um, he doesn't have to, is my point. He He's not the only one, basically. When Hall was injured, he it seemed like he was one of the only people who could score a goal on the team. Eh, yes and no. I mean, he, he was a big shooter, and that's his style. Like, he's a guy he needs to shoot. 
I mean, not that Palmieri is like this awful passer or this awful puck distributor or puck controller, but his bread and butter is you want him firing shots. And that's what you want him to do. So you need guys to help get him the puck. You need to help feed him on the power play for that one timer that he's pretty good at hitting. To an extent, you, you need him to be fed. And I guess, I guess to your point, yeah, he doesn't have to be the main man. He doesn't have to be the guy that all the other teams are going to look at and say, all right, this is the one guy we need to stop more than anything else. Because if that's the case, then, yeah, Palmieri's going to be hindered. Uh, as opposed to, say, Hall, who can take on those matchups and win them. That said, if you want to get the most out of him, you need to keep featuring him in a prominent spot and need to keep feeding him the puck. That's really what it, what it really comes down to. Yeah, just stick him on the Ovazoid and have him fire away. Pretty much. That's, so, what, that, that's what they did a couple of years ago on the power play. I don't know why they ever went away from that. but And then they went back to it because they realized, oh, yeah, it worked. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what we should be doing with this guy. This is basically his house. I mean, Ovi is the landlord, but he does pay rent there, so he can he can lounge there all he wants. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so Kyle Palmieri, congrats on making this list. But uh, moving on here, we're not going to do a This Week in Devil's Hockey because spoilers – Nothing happened again. I guess we can talk about Reed Boucher if we want, but no one really wants to talk about Reed Boucher. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to give tribute to another fairly random devil, but a fairly random recent devil who uh, called it her career um, in the last week or two, and that's Eddie Lack. And let's not forget that Eddie Lack had a heroic 48-save <laughs> performance oh, yeah. in Tampa Bay, and the Devils made the playoffs by one point. Without that performance, the Devils don't make it. So Eddie Lack brought a lot of, um, I think he was a great locker room presence. He seemed to get along well with everyone on the team. He and Amanda Stein are great friends. He's always good for a good interview. And he did, in some small but very important way, contribute to the Devils getting back to the playoffs two years ago. So congratulations on a great and lengthy career. Uh, for a goalkeeper, for a backup goalkeeper. He played uh, in Vancouver, Carolina, New Jersey. Did I miss anywhere else? Well, the minors. Well, yeah, okay. Quite a bit there. Yeah, I'm talking just majors, but uh, yeah, Eddie Lack, congratulations on your career. Thank you for your contribution, and I'm not sure what he's going to be doing moving forward. Maybe you have some insight into that? I do. His, he has announced his quasi, what I'm going to call a quasi-retirement, because he has said that, he wants to work out and try to make a comeback later, but he said his body, his hips are not letting him do that right now. So rather than push his way to only play minimal time last season, he only appeared in six games last season for Binghamton, and he was pretty bad. Uh, he had a save percentage of 86%, which is Ooh. not good. That's not even good in the 80s. <laughs> That's in the 1980s. Right. So uh, – but he has stated that he will be a volunteer goaltending coach for Arizona State University in this coming season. So he will presumably be using his experience, guiding the future of their goaltenders. And it's college hockey. So if you do well as a goaltender, you should turn out to, you know, maybe you didn't get your name called at age 18. But if you go out, do well at that level, by age 21, 22, NHL teams may start, you know, calling you up calling your people and uh, giving you a contract when you're done. So all you young goaltenders in Arizona State University, listen to the man. He's been in the NHL. He's been in the AHL. He has lots of professional experience. And he is a guy who fought his way from being a 
goaltender out of Sweden and made his way into North America and established himself there for the better part of a decade. So he will give you good advice on how to establish yourself professionally and on and off the ice and what to really expect at the professional level. And presumably while he does that, he'll continue to work out off ice. And if his body presumably lets him, I'm sure he will try his best to get a tryout somewhere and see if he can make it back. Yeah, exactly. And again, thank you to him for his contribution as part of the New Jersey Devils. It was kind of interesting when he signed the contract initially. Everyone was kind of confused as to what his role would be. But then we realized, you know, Binghamton goalie. All right, cool. We're rolling with him there. And he performed when he needed to. So all the best of luck at Arizona State. They actually are a relatively new D1 team, but they've been playing pretty well. And I think they just had their first guy drafted, but I'm not positive. So he gets to take a fledgling program and kind of mold it in his image in terms of goalkeeping. So congratulations. That's a great opportunity to get right when you're done playing. And all the best to Eddie Lack and his family. Mm-hmm. All right, so that kind of brings us to the end of what we've got for today. John, do you have any last-minute things you'd like to get in this episode? We've got some ideas for the next one, but I think this one's a little – this one's pretty content-heavy already, so we'll we'll give people a chance to marinate and digest this one. Well, I'm just quickly quickly looking at the comments from the last episode to see if there's any particular questions, thoughts, opinions. It's mostly discussion about what would happen, but – Apparently, I'm, I've been told by a guy named Maliki that a dry pickle is a cucumber, John. <laughs> I have had cucumbers. So, yes, that much I have had. That I figure that is it. Okay. I actually do have... Well, it's also salty. It's got to be salty to be a pickle, right? Well, kind of. It has a salty sort of taste. But well, cucumbers it's... themselves are not salty. It's pretty... Right. So it's, it's a vegetable. It's, so it's, it's not very... really a dry pickle. It's fresh more than anything else. <laughs> um, all right. I'm looking to see if there's any good questions here. Okay, here's a question from Elias Del Rocks. He had a bunch of questions, but I'm only going to pick this one because it's actually interesting. And this might actually reveal, like, your time as a fan. Oh, boy. The question is, which was actually better over their time together? And this is important. Their time together, not their individual careers. The A-line of Patrick Eliash, Jason Arna, and Peter Sikora, or the egg-line of Patrick Eliash, Scott Gomez, and Brian Gianta. Interesting. I'm going with Eliash Arnott Sikora. The A-line. That's the line I grew up watching. That's the line that made me excited about the team. That's the line that I remember from watching videos of 2000 and 2003, and also, you know, watching it in the moment, obviously, but being able to process a little more as I got older. But yeah, I love those guys. When Sakura came back, I was hyped about it. Um, I hated losing Arnott, even though it did bring in Nguyen, Dyke, and Langenbrunner, who led to the 2003 championship. But yeah, I love that line. I think they were super fun to watch. They had really, really good chemistry. And I did like Eliash Gomez Gianta, but it didn't feel as dominant to me as Eliash Arnott Sakura. How about you? This is a bit more interesting. This is a closer discussion I think people give it credit for. I think a big reason why, as you say, the A-line is bigger is because, just like you, I was a young guy. I was, you know, starting to finish up high school with the A-line. You know, the A-line, I think the big thing why I think people regard them better is because they won a championship. Uh, Eliash created one of the greatest Stanley Cup winning goals in history. 
with the uh, no look behind the back pass of the slot across across the slot to Jason Arda in double overtime on the road, which, you know, when you say that out loud, it's like, wow, that's that is amazingly uh, courageous. But he made it work. And of course, it was also responsible for Eliash's best season. It was, was it was responsible for the highest scoring season by an individual devil in franchise history with Eliash's 96 points. It was just a fantastic line to watch. But it also had a fairly short uh, runtime. It lasted for only a couple seasons because Jason Arnott was traded for Neuendijk and Langenbrunner. And Sakura also eventually left the team as well. He was on Anaheim uh, in 2003. So that said, the egg line, I think the egg line had a bigger peak from a pure scoring perspective. I remember that season, Patrick Eliash was suffering from hepatitis. And there was a legitimate question of whether or not he was going to live, much less play the game of ice hockey, right. much less play for the New Jersey Devils. And when he came back, like Gomez and Gianta were already having good seasons, but adding Eliash to the mix, it was one of the greatest runs by a player and by a line I, I, I that I can remember. Eliash played completely out of his mind for those last few months, and they were a massive reason why the Devils went. They had a winning streak throughout the month of April. And mind you, that season, because of the lockout year, the season was shortened. So most, so the regular season ran into the middle of April, and then came the playoffs where the Devils played the Rangers in the first round, our hated rivals. And they just swept them. It was amazing. These guys were just win, 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 win. And almost every night it was going to be Elias was on the score sheet. Gomez is on the score sheet. Gianta gets, like, another two goals. And Gianta doesn't get to 48 goals without that you know, the spark, the nitroglycerin, if you will, <laughs> that Patrick Eliash brought in that season. And truth be told, in following seasons similar to the A-line, the, the explosiveness wasn't as high, but they were still heading, they were still a pretty great line compared to other top first lines in the league at the time. But like everything else, it didn't last forever. Gomez decided that he wanted to make his money in New York, and, you know, things things went from there. But to answer the question, which was better. I will say the A-line was better because they have that championship because of Eliash's best season was with the, with that group. And because they sort of, they sort of, they last longer in people's memories than I think the egg line does because of those reasons. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, to me, it, the ZZ pops line stands out more than the egg line. I know the egg line was very prominent, but I remember the ZZ Pops line a little bit better. Just, you know, Parisi, Zajac, and Langenbrenner. That one was super cool to watch. They had some weird chemistry that no one anticipated, but they were rolling along for a while, too. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Was the egg line, was that year the year that they lost the eventual champion Hurricanes in the second round? Yes. Uh, Brad Lukowicz should have tackled that guy in the crease right. uh, in overtime. Like, you know, if there's a you know if there's a time to take a bad penalty just to prevent a goal, it's the playoffs. Yeah. But but there was there were larger issues than just that one play. I mean, it was a classic case of you know some team just some teams just have your number and there's not really any rhyme or reason. It just you know you just sort of it, it just doesn't work out. And in a game like hockey in a series seven game series, you just need to have a couple games that just don't go your way because of one reason or another. And you're already behind the eight ball to begin with, and therefore you lose the series. So there we are. All right. Well, yeah, that's a fun little retrospective. Thanks again to Eliash Still Rocks for that insight. And, 
yeah thanks again for listening to episode three of the garden state of hockey podcast we'll be back next week with some more content for you as we barrel towards the start of the regular season so john where can they find your work they can always find my work at allaboutthejersey.com it's the devil's blog for the people who matter the devil's fans perfect and i've actually had a name change i am at danraz623 now so feel free to tweet me there feel free to tweet it all about the jersey and as always we welcome any comments on the blog posts or any sort of feedback you have uh, about the podcast so like i said thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day and rest of your week